Well, good morning again. Sure, it's a pleasure to be here with you, dear folks, this morning, and trust the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Songs like we just sang, uh, especially this special number, uh, makes me wonder if I'm <laughs> worthy to be up here this morning. You know, when we're talking about I Surrender All, um, the Spirit of God being in control of my life, you know, those are songs we have to sing prayerfully, aren't they? You know, I, in my preparation, you know, I seek to do those things, but you know, I, when you're constantly reminded it comes before you, uh, speaks to your heart. Thank you for speaking to my heart through those songs this morning. Um, and I think it's kind of a, a good format for what we're going to be doing. Uh, our, our, that song, those songs should challenge our hearts. And the message that I have before us, is, I would think, is going to challenge our hearts too. Uh, because it really challenged mine as I uh, was asked to put together uh, for a conference uh, some messages on the first three chapters in Revelation. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, the next two times, this time and the next time we're together. And the reason uh, I was asked to uh, put together a series on that is because everybody in Michigan, and I've noticed most churches uh, that I fellowship with in California, kind of always ask the same type of question, you know. I'm, why is uh, everybody so concerned about the direction the church is going? Uh, are you concerned about the direction the church is going today? Uh, I am. Uh, I think it's a legitimate thing to be concerned about. Uh, the direction the church that, that's go, the direction is going today shouldn't totally surprise us because Scripture uh, gives us a pretty good idea uh, the direction the church will be going and where we are at at this point in time. Not loud enough? Well, that's hard to believe. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Rich. Uh, so what we're going to be doing is looking at uh, these first three chapters, and of course, uh, we only have two Sundays to do that, so it's going to have to be a brief study on it, but I just trust, that I know Scott in his prayer uh, said uh, he is praised that, you know, we will listen, we will hear. Well, you're going to hear uh, that phrase uh, to all seven of the churches, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and in the literal, at once, what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. That's just one of two phrases. Another phrase that we're going to notice as we look at these seven churches that are in chapters 2 and 3 is that the Lord says, you know, I know I see very clearly your works. Now just think about that for a moment. I know. I see very clearly your works. Nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord. He knows the heart of his people. And as we start this little study... Uh, I want just to read uh, the first uh, three verses 
Well, maybe we should go back and start with verse 10. <clears throat> it is more important that we read God's word than what I have to say. So definitely we should read. This is John's vision, what John saw as the Lord was speaking to him. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I will stop our reading at that point. And what this, this passage in the first chapter does is kind of leads us into what John was commanded to write to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And of course, these letters may be applied in several ways. Um, first of all, they, they really seem to describe conditions that actually existed in the seven local churches at the time that John was writing. These churches actually existed at this point in time. Uh, secondly, these letters appear to give a view of future, uh, features found in the church or churches in every century from Pentecost. You know, that's where the church began. And, of course, the church age will end at the rapture. So that's another aspect of what these letters could be a view of. The churches throughout church history. And of course, a third view is that this, uh, these letters uh, already appear to give a consecutive preview of the history of Christendom, which each church representing a distinct period down through the ages of the church age with a downward trend. And, of course, if that's so, it's sad. But as you look at church history, apparently it is true. It's been a downward trend. 
And in the verse 19, the Lord commands John to write to the church concerning three things. First of all, he says, I want you to write about the things which you have seen. And I just read a little bit about what John saw. And basically, it was a great vision that he has seen of the glorified Son of Man. The glorified Son of Man. And I think the vision speaks of the great glory, the dignity, the divine righteousness, and the judicial rights of the Son of Man. That's in a nutshell. You know, the world and the church needs to focus their attention on what this vision revealed about the glorified Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's obvious in the world today that the world pays no attention to the righteous judgment of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't even really enter their thoughts. In fact, if it does, it's normally in a manner that ridicules the whole idea. Well, we can expect that from the world. But is it possible that the church, the body of Christ, has done the same? You know, the word of God tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ will judge all mankind. The unrighteous and the righteous. Well, I know from scripture that I'm not going to have to fear the righteous judgment of God for the unrighteous. That will be the great white throne judgment. As a member of the church, the body of Christ, I won't be there to be judged. He's already bore that judgment for me. That's been dealt with. But that doesn't mean we are not going to stand before the righteous judge someday. And this is just a thought as we approach this, you know. I think if every member of the church, the body of Christ, would live in view of the judgment or beam a seat of Christ, many of our presence concerns for the direction the church is going and maybe our lives are going would be replaced with encouragement for the direction the church would be going and our lives would be going. We are to live in view every day of the judgment or being the seat of Christ, the righteous judge. Now, that will be nothing like the great white throne judgment because there you see it will be our works. Now, we are not going to be judged in relationship to sin. That's already been dealt with. But our works are going to be. And you see, when you talk about the direction that the church is going, well, let's, let's ask you a question. Who is the church? Who is it? Well, we'll say, first of all, well, it's the body of Christ. And that's correct. Some will say, well, it's, he's, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Well, that's also correct. But I'm getting at a very in, uh, personal point here. Who is the church? It's every believer in this room. 
who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church is made up of living stones that are added day by day to this marvelous organism, which is the church. Yes, it's Christ's body. He's the head. We are the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. But do you understand that you, individually, are the church? And this is who we're addressing, the church. And when the Lord writes to these seven churches, it's interesting, as I went through this, there's no indication that any one of these seven churches ever totally responded to what he had to say. See, they had ears to hear, but they were not listening with a view obeying at once what the Lord was saying. And I was thankful for the prayer this morning that we would hear, listen with the view of obeying what the word of God has to say to us today. And as I thought about the, the church, you know, this is going to be a time of self-examination. You know, I've, I know of organizations that have been formed that go throughout the, our country and throughout the world trying to help the church become more effective in all these things. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But, you know, my thinking is, if you want to know the direction the church is going and, you're, and you as a member of the body of Christ should be going, who better to listen to than the Lord himself? And in these two chapters, two and three, the Lord tells us what pleases him and what displeases him. So, you know, it's really not that difficult to see the direction we should be moving as the church individually, but also as we gather together corporately, because, you know, there are local gatherings of the Lord's people, assemblies, who come together as we have done today to do those things that we were asked to do in the book of Acts that laid out the foundation for gathering together around the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through this today, I want to emphasize, I didn't make this message up for Claremont Bible Chapel. <laughs> as I said, I was asked to put this together a couple of years ago for a conference in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I have used it on occasion, and I'm finding, I didn't plan on doing this, but the Lord has kind of let me do that to a, a few of the churches here, because I know there are people who are concerned about the direction that the church is going, and that's good. Well, let's find out what the positives are, because the Lord's going to tell us what he appreciates about these churches, and it's interesting he has commendations for, for six of the seven churches. There's one he doesn't have anything good to say about. And, of course, he has rebuked for all but one church. One church was not rebuked. But as we go through all seven of these churches very briefly, what I'm going to encourage you to do is this. First of all, I want you to think that, I, that 
you are the one who is being addressed. So I want you to you know, evaluate your own personal spiritual life from what the Lord says it should be. Because you see, no local body can function any better than the individual members are functioning in that body. And you're going to find as we go through this, and it was true of all of the churches, some of those good things were going on in all of the churches. And some of those things that really displeased the Lord were going on in all of those churches, except the one. So I do want you to keep in mind, I don't have Claremont Bible Chapel in mind as I put this lesson together, but I trust you will Listen to what the Spirit of God has to say to you and evaluate, first of all, in your own life, because that's where it begins, but also as an assembly. <laughs> Are we moving in the direction the Lord would have us go? So this is more or less the object of our study, and it's going to be the second thing. You know, the first thing he said to the, the churches, uh, Tell them about what you saw. And I've, I've read that and we went through that very briefly in chapter 1. Then he says, I want you to write about, write about the things that are. That means what's going on in the church today. And then, of course, he says, starting with chapter 4 through the rest of the book of Revelation, I want you to write and tell them about the things that are yet to be. Well, we're not going to be dealing with that at all. We're just going to be focusing on the things that are the things that are related to the church, the body of Christ. So let's get started with the first church. And I want to have you keep in mind, as we look at these seven churches, the two phrases that are repeated in all seven churches. Again, the two phrases are, I know with absolute clearness your works. That's true of you personally, He's saying that to you personally, and he's saying it to you as a corporate body here of believers. I see with absolute clearness your works. You can fool all the folks around you here, but you can't fool the Lord. He knows. He sees. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, and for I'm standing... I don't see anybody who doesn't have ears to hear. Now, if there's somebody here who is deaf, I apologize. But, you know, those of us who have ears to hear, let him hear at once what the Spirit of God is saying to you and to this body of believers. Now, of course, the first church is the church at Ephesus. So let's look at verse 2, and this is all we're going to get through this morning. In chapter 2, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have per, uh, persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works. For else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from his place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Again, God will bless the reading of his word. Now, it's interesting, the word Ephesus means desirable. Desirable. And Ephesus is the only church that we know of that two apostles wrote letters. And of course, the first apostle who wrote the letter was the apostle Paul. And we know it as the book of Ephesians. And you know, I don't know about you, but to me, Ephesians is one of the real gems of all the epistles. I mean, you read the book of Ephesians. In fact, we went through the book of Ephesians somewhat with you last year. All the marvelous things that are brought before us in that letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. You know, Ephesus was a church that had a great beginning. And you notice that right in the very first verse of the book of Ephesians, for he writes there to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, faithful in what? They were faithful to the one they loved. That's what faithfulness is, you know. You're faithful to the one you love. But now John writes a letter. And interesting, you know, when he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, it was really only about 35 years later. That's not a very long period of time. And, of course, when John wrote that letter, the church was in crisis. Think about it. In 35 years, they had fallen. That's all John says. You have fallen because you have lost your first love. What love was that? Well, it was their love for the Lord. They were no longer faithful in their love for the Lord. And then as you look at the rest of the opening verses of chapter 2 there, he commends them for many things. And as we go through these things he commends them for, well, these are things that please the Lord. So listen. <laughs> See, you have ears to hear. Listen what the Spirit of the God has to say to you and as a body about what pleases him. And I trust you will find these things in your life. But don't be surprised if you find some of them lacking in your life. This early church was walking, first of all, in separation from the world. Christ was the center of their gathering together around him. Kind of experienced some of that this morning, didn't we? Gathering together around him. He acknowledged their works. You know, it starts out by saying, I know your works. That's a phrase, but then he says, your labor. You see, he's emphasizing here, he acknowledged their works and patience. You know, James could have never written to this church, faith without works is dead. 
This church was working, laboring for the Lord. They faithfully remembered the Lord. They probably preached the gospel and discipled new believers. See, this is all going on yet in this letter. These are things he's commending them for. They had evangelistic outreach and a strong spiritual leadership. They were standing up for the truth. They would not tolerate false doctrine being grounded in God's word. And of course, that's the only way you can stand up against false doctrine is being grounded in God's word. If you're grounded in God's word, you're not going to be fooled by false doctrine. See, they patiently stood firm when tested, willing to suffer for Christ's sake. However, although there was plenty of activity going on, there was no real spiritual blessing. Very little spiritual blessing at this point in time. Well, why? Well, you just heard all the things he complimented them for. I don't know how you stood up there. How this assembly stands there, that's what you have to examine. But in, verses, in verse 4, in the first part of verse 5, we have the rebuke. Their love for Christ diminished. Their love for Christ diminished. Solemn, isn't it? You know, when Paul wrote <clears throat> to Ephesus, he reminded them of their exalted position in Christ. And amongst many things, he said, you are risen with Christ, and you're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Everything was centered around Christ. But now, as John writes, he simply says, thou art fallen. You know, when you think about this, all the depths of their fall. The New Testament uh, uh, extended translation by um, worst from the Greek translates this verse this way. But I have this against you. Your love for me, that earliest love you abandoned. I came across something by Robert McClurkin, which kind of really spoke to me. It, it talked about first love. This love we have for the Lord. I can remember the day I accepted Christ. Oh, you can't really put it into words, but you know, there was just this love for the Lord. I knew all about the Lord before that, but I didn't love him before that. But you know, the moment he came into my life, it clicked how much he loved me. As the songwriter says, how can I help but love him when he loves me so? And I realize love has to grow too. But you see, that first moment, that love for the Lord was strong and it was evident in my life. I can't always say that's been true over the 62 years that I've known the Lord. You know, sometimes the love wanes and flows. 
but whose fault is that? You know, we were rejoicing in the, in the greatness of God's love this morning at the Lord's table. Can't argue with that. <laughs> His love is great. But, you know, we don't love all that well. That's the bottom line. And that was evident here at the church, you know. But he, this McClurkin points out four lovely features, and just listen to them very briefly. He says, first love is, it is pure, for it is the love of betrothal. Now, I just spoke on marriage here a month ago. We all understand the love of betrothal. You know, as a believer in Christ, I am his bride. He is my bridegroom. That's a pure love. You know, to leave first love is to leave the purity of the one object before the heart. Is the Lord Jesus Christ really the only object before your heart? Should be. He says then, first love is tender. How sensitive it is to everything that would offend the lover of our souls. I don't want to do anything to offend my wife. I really don't. That doesn't mean I don't. But I have no desire to do that. Why? Because first love is tender towards the one you love. And the thought of doing something that would grieve the Lord should really bother us. See, that proper attitude towards the one we love would keep me from doing anything to offend that one I love. First love is sacrificial. Christ was and should be the first object and the first confidence, the first goal of our affections. And then he says, first love is supreme. All other loves are dwarfed by his love. And I've used this example. I love my wife dearly. But I, I love somebody more. She loves me dearly. I know that. But she loves somebody more. And that's okay. Because who is that somebody? It's the Lord. He should be the supreme love in your life. Arnold Gabeline kind of expresses the situation this way. The love for Christ and devotion to him, the altogether lovely one was waning. Outwardly, everything may have looked right, but the Lord who desires the deepest affection of his people knew their hearts were departing from him. This is the starting point of all church and individual failure. Their hearts were growing cold towards himself. And I couldn't help but think, here we learn, if service for the Lord is not motivated by devoted love for the Lord, Jesus Christ, it is worthless, and it grieves the Lord. You know, a lot of good things are going on at Claremont Bible Chapel. I see them. But I see them on the Lord's Day. A lot of nice things are going on here. But you have to ask yourself, in your own life, is the Lord Jesus Christ your first love? As an assembly, is the Lord Jesus Christ your first love? The most important thing for you is to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your being. Because it's only then you can really serve him as you ought. Oh, activities are great. You have many marvelous things going on. But don't forget, so did the church at Ephesus. But what was lacking? Love for the Lord. You know, the Lord promises us that, or warns us in verses 5 through 7 of judicial action. And three actions are necessary for recovery. They're in three R's. Remember, repent, return. So as you examine your own life, I trust you'll say, yes, the Lord is my first love. But if you can't really say that, you know, if your heart's being pricked, don't blame me. I'm just reading what God's word says. God could be speaking to you. And if you're saying, you know, maybe he isn't my first love. Maybe my love for him is waning. Well, the Lord gives you the formula to deal with it. Remember, repent, and return. You see, the church or the life that will not do these is headed for disaster. Again, in the New Testament extended translation, it reads this way. Be remembering. That's not be remembering. is present continuous tense. It's ongoing, therefore, from where you have fallen. And at once have a change of mind. There's repent. A change of mind and actions about God, sin, and self. And the early works. Now, we're not talking about works here. It's faithfulness. Go back. Go back to from where you have fallen, and that's to your first love. See, return directly. Perform it directly. So if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, to the heart of this assembly, about this aspect of what was taking place in Ephesus, and you've seen it as a problem, okay, remember that first love. Repent. That you have left it and go back to where you were. And then he goes on and he encourages them by saying, if you do that, there's certain things I will do. The promise to overcomers. You see, there are those who overcome. And there are those who are overcome. I don't know where you fit in there. But I found I fit into both of those in the course of my Christian experience. Oh, I have overcome. It's a joy when it happens. But there's been times that I have been overcome. And then what do I have to do? I have to remember. I have to repent. And I have to return to where I was with the Lord. And that's true of every last one of us. There's some things that we, uh, concerning our love for the Lord that become very obvious and evident in this passage. You know, love for Christ in chapter 5 is absolutely paramount. A local assembly that is functioning without love for Christ is worse than useless. Yeah, worse than useless. Why? Because you're giving a wrong picture 
of Christ and the church. See, it isn't about you or me. The church is about Christ. Christ is in us, every one of us. He's everything. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's paramount that we have absolute love for the Lord. Love must be, in verse 6, absolutely positive. You know, their love for Christ, such as it was, manifested itself in hatred of evil and false doctrine and practices. And, you know, that's good. That's one thing he commended them for. You know, I, I have a real distaste for false doctrine and pe- uh, teachers of false doctrine. But I have to be very honest. Uh, when I deal with those people, I have to change my ways. This is where I've been overcome. I know the scriptures. And I bring the scriptures out. And I show them the scriptures. I hardly give them a chance to say boo, but they hear the scriptures. But what's missing? Love. The love of Christ. I'm sure they can't wait. I know they can't wait to get away from me. And I'm sure they don't listen. Why should they? You see, it's a sad thing, and there's something wrong when emphasis upon the love of Christ is replaced with focus upon the negatives. And how often in an assembly and in our lives, that's what happens. You know, there's many positive things going on at Claremont Bible Chapel. Well, I'm sure there are some things that aren't going on that should be going on. But what are you going to focus on? Unfortunately, many focus on the negatives instead of focusing upon the positive things the Lord is doing amongst his people here. Where there are problems, you deal with them. But you deal with them in love. And you do what you can out of love for Christ to turn those things around that need to be changed. You see, love must be absolutely positive. And, of course, as I mentioned, love must be absolutely personal. I've already mentioned there's no indication that any one of these seven churches as a whole repented and returned to the things they were being accused of by the Lord. So what does he do? He appeals to individuals. See, it begins with you, okay, and, of course, me. And, you know, I found that I love being around people who really love the Lord. Why is that? Because it's contagious. It really is. You know, the more people here who really love the Lord and it's evident will cause more other people here to love the Lord. And then the Lord can bless You see, a lot of neat things were happening in Ephesus, but little blessing. Why? Their love for the Lord diminished. How sad. And then we have the final thing here is the promise to those who overcome. You know, those who overcome in Ephesus would be those who continued to genuinely love the Lord or and or those who recognized their love for the Lord was waning 
and they repented, and they returned to their first love. These are the overcomers. So if you love the Lord here, and that, you really can say, yes, I really love the Lord. That's he, the most important thing in my life and my service. Keep on keeping on. But if you feel that your love for the Lord has waned, well, don't let us stay there. Do something about it. Go to the Lord and repent. And have that first love restored. Then you're an overcomer. Don't be one who is overcome. Be one who is an overcomer. And of course, the promise is the right to eat of the tree of the, of the life, which is in the paradise of God. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, there was two trees in the center of the garden. One of them was the tree of life. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know that both Adam and Eve ate of the, the tree they were forbidden to eat from. They were kicked out of the garden for one basic reason. So they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. Because had they eaten of the tree of life, after they had sinned, they would have lived in sin forever. Nothing could have changed it. They weren't allowed to eat from that tree. But you know, for those of the, who really love the Lord, really love the Lord, they're promised that they will be able to eat from the tree of life in paradise. And to me, basically, that is just God's gracious provision for salvation through the love of Christ in time and throughout all eternity. Well, our time's gone. We just looked at one church. But what a lesson here. It's probably one of the most important, but I can't say that because they're all important or they wouldn't be in Scripture. But you know, I don't know about you. We all know we are to love the Lord. We have every reason to. We were reminded again this morning how loving he is. Doesn't he deserve our love in return, totally. I trust that's the case in your life. If not, do something about it. Be an overcomer. <laughs> and this meeting will be blessed. Your life will be blessed. May the Lord just bless these thoughts to our hearts. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your beloved Son, and our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for his example of love. There's no question in our minds how much he loved us. For he loved us unto death, even the death of the cross. He loves us still because he intercedes in our behalf as his children every moment of every day. He loves us enough to bring him to himself. And how we look forward to that day. But we have to confess that all too often our love is not great in return. May we realize and understand that you are deserving of our love. You should be the first and only love in our lives. 
Lord, by loving you as we ought, all the other love that comes into our life will be of greater manifestation. So Lord, just help us to apply these things in our own lives as we examine ourselves this morning. We thank for each one here who truly loves you and lives in that respect. We pray for those whose hearts you are speaking to today that they may be overcomers. They may repent and return to their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just part us now with your blessing. Bless our time of fellowship together and our time in your word again this evening. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.